Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our service. I'm Monty Judah with Line and Land Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom, the Children of Peace. A uh, couple of quick announcements before we get uh, Kiddush underway and our Sabbath underway. Uh, we, uh, of course, we're coming up on the fall holidays, and I want to remind everybody about trumpets and atonement and, of course, Han- uh, not Hanukkah, but tabernacles coming along. And, well, Hanukkah is a little bit later after that, too. Um, Lion of Land Ministries hosts a large uh, Feast of Tabernacles celebration here in Oklahoma. And uh, you can get more information about that if you'd like to come and be a part of that uh, off of our website. We are going to be out there for the full eight-day uh, festival, nine days of camping. We also have a weekend pass if you'd like to just come for a certain period of time uh, for the first part of it. Uh, the uh, the deadline for uh, for coming to it is coming up in about two weeks, so you do not want to hesitate if you'd like to be part of the Feast of Tabernacles celebration with us at Lion of Lamb. Uh, and in fact, August 25th, Friday, that will be the final day that you can register and be a part of it. At that point, we have to get ready uh, for it, and uh, so that's the final date. Um, don't wait until the final date. Make your decision now. Make your plan now. And uh, come and join us for the Feast of Tabernacles. We'd love to have you. Um, also, as I mentioned before, Hanukkah is follows after that. That's in December. And there is going to be a Hanukkah conference. It is hosted by Hebraic Family Fellowship, which is right here in Norman, uh, December 15th through the 17th. Registration is open for that as well. And uh, uh, we'd love to have you come and be part of for a couple of days to enjoy Hanukkah with all of us as well. And we'll have some excellent teaching available for you. We do have a special offer right now available for everybody that's following Lion and Lion Ministries. Um, I did a teaching called The Feasts of the Messiah and Their Prophetic Fulfillment. Uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but let me just tell you, if you're new in the Messianic movement, this is going to be a very interesting teaching for you. It's going to bring you up to speed very quickly about God's great plan of how he's really revealing the Messiah while he's showing us the Feast of the Lord. And for those of you who have been around for a while and are a little bit more mature in Messianic thinking, you're going to get a lot of benefit from this as well because it goes into deeper insights about those holidays and God's great plan uh, for what he's doing with all of us and, and has been doing since he got Israel going. So that is a product offer that's available. Check the main website so that you can be a part of that and uh, and to get that. I recommend it strongly to all of you uh, to have in your library. All right, without any further, uh, well, wait a minute, I've got one more. Uh, the local guys here that are locally here in the Norman Moore area and so forth, we have our men's prayer breakfast this Sunday. Uh, we always tell everybody come at 9 o'clock, but Joe and his guys usually are pretty good about getting the breakfast cooked and ready to go, and it's usually ready to go at about 
8.45. And so if you come exactly at 9 o'clock or roll in fashionably late, uh, let me tell you, you're just going to find a whole lot of guys sitting here who probably already had their breakfast. Uh, so we encourage you to come you know, before 9 o'clock because that's usually when the child's ready to go. And uh, excellent breakfast with all the men that are in the local area. You're certainly invited to come, join with us in praying, and bring your tallit with you, you know, and um, to join with other men to pray about the needs of the community. Amen? All right, without any further ado, let's go to Kiddush and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Chamotzi lechem min haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said, Baruch Atadonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's all right. Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household. I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her, give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her, and to you that I love my wife. So, Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. 
We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons.
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. 
Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru Bnei Israel at Hashabat, Lasot at Hashabat, Ladortam, Burit Olam, Bnei Avayom, Bnei Israel, Odhit Leolam, Kishashet Yamim, Asadonai, at Hashmaim, Vayet Haaretz, Avayom, Hashvi'i Shabbat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. But I'll turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, v'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'kol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher anchim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. V'shinantam lavanecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakpika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totvo b'inanecha, u'chetavtam la'mazuzo p'techa, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Elohim, who was and is and is to come. Blessed be your name, whose kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 7, starting at verse 12, where our portion will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week, like I said, begins in uh, verse 12 of chapter 7, where it says, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, then the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. That first phrase there where it says, And then it shall come to pass because. That is translated several different ways depending on what translation you have. Sometimes it says um, on the heel of, or sometimes it says, uh, Then it shall shall be a consequence of this or as a result. This causes us to stop and think about this word, this Hebrew word, ikev, which is the title of our, our portion, which sometimes um, the root of that word ikev means several different things. It can mean, uh, like I said, a consequence of something like as a result. And so it's interesting here that as we talk about the Torah, that God didn't just give us the Torah, just give us blessings. Everything that we do has to be earned. It is a result of us keeping the commandments. The very root of that word, Kev, is also just very interesting as it is the heel of something. You might remember that the story of Jacob when he was in the womb and his, the story of his birth with Esau, that as Esau came out first, the firstborn, that Jacob grasped the heel of Esau, and so his mother called him Jacob, or in the Hebrew, Yaakov. Ikev is the root of Yaakov, which means the heel, or the grasping of the heel. This causes us to stop and think about this. I like to look in at that Hebrew word. What is the meaning of that, and what does that really mean to this Torah portion here? It's interesting looking at that Hebrew word. It's made up of three Hebrew letters. It's made up of an ain, a kuf, and a bet. And the interesting letter there is the kuf, which means the back of the head, and the ain, which means the eyes. And so it's almost like what is behind or what has already passed behind us. That word bet means house or encasement. And so it's almost, sometimes I can think of whatever is behind us that we've already passed beyond is what has happened. So that relates to the meaning of that word where it said as a result of or as a consequence. These things have happened, so now something else is going to happen. Talking about that heel, that also makes me think about also the first time in Scripture where that Hebrew word and those Hebrew letters appear. And that comes from Genesis chapter 3. That's the, um, that was the punishment of the serpent when he was punished to crawl on his belly and that then he was going to, that the man was going to crush his head and that you are going to bruise his heel. That's the first time that that Hebrew word ever appears in our scripture. 
I find it very interesting here talking about the heel. There's lots of things that I've noticed about this. Whenever you're going down a path, whenever you're walking, the first thing that you step you take and the first thing that ever makes contact with the ground as you're moving in a certain direction is your heel. As you take a step, your heel's the first thing that touches the ground. If there is to be a snare or an entrapment or uh, something that is going to be in your way, your heel is going to be the thing that trips that. It's the first thing that takes that step. Also, in like manner, when you're walking, then your heel, if you look behind you as you're walking, the very last thing that leaves an area where you are is your heel. As you're taking a step, it's the last thing that, that part of you that leaves a certain area is your heel. If there's ever something that's coming against you, ever something that is that is nipping at your heels, if you will, that's where it's attempting to get you. As you're if you're fleeing away from somebody, then that's the last thing that the enemy or a snare or an entrapment is going to attempt to get. This is really how, in my mind, this relates, and this has many parallels in this Torah portion, that the heel has to do with how the enemy comes against us, how he's trying to attack us, just like the punishment of the serpent, that you are to, you're going to bruise the heel of the man. And this carries on as a theme through the rest of our Torah portion. We're going to talk about... Um, we're gonna, there's many blessings in this Torah portion. We're going to talk about the uh, famous phrase where it says, man shall not live by bread alone. And we're going to go into the New Testament because there's a great parallel of that verse and how it was quoted by the Messiah when he was tempted in the wilderness by the enemy. We're also going to recount in this portion in chapter 9, we're going to recount all of the rebellions that Israel committed. We're going to recount the golden calf. We're going to recount the graves of craving and all of those times that the, that the Lord um, the, that the people tested God, that the people rebelled against God, that they were ensnared by their lusts, by their desires, and they fell prey to the enemy coming against them or fell prey to their own lusts and those traps. And that is a and also we're going to talk about the very essence of the law and all of the commandments. And I think in our modern day, we have situations that where people are ensnared and entrapped even by their interpretation of the law, holding to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And that sometimes when we get too caught up in one or the other, that that can even be an entrapment for people as they go, as they lead, as they teach, as they go to learn the words of the Lord. So many times the enemy will try to take it, get a foothold in and will try to entrap you in various ways. This is a theme that is throughout our portion. Let me now go and let me continue on and we can read some of these wonderful blessings that Moses is sharing. But then keeping in mind always that the enemy always wants to stop those blessings. He wants to prevent us from doing what the Lord has. He wants to prevent us from obeying the Lord, from keeping the commandments. But we need to continue to follow after the Lord. And if we do, blessings will follow. So let's read on now, um, continuing on our portion. And he will love and bless you and multiply you. This is as a result of keeping the commandments. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, and there shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away all sickness and will inflict on you none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on those who hate you. You shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over you. 
Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. Verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispose them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God is among you. And the Lord will uh, Lord, your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them all at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord, your God, will deliver them over you and and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. What an amazing blessing this is, the God that we serve. That gives the promises, should you keep his commandments, should you obey his judgments, his statutes, then he will do this for you. Not a single person will be barren among you. You'll be, you'll be blessed. You'll be multiplied in the land where you are. What an amazing blessing that is, the power of God. And that even those that hate you, those that are your enemies, they will fall before you. But what's interesting is there are those tiny little notes, those tiny little things that are included in that blessing. That you shouldn't serve any of the other gods, that it be a snare to you. You're to destroy them. But even you're to destroy them, cast them into the fire. There's gold, there's silver on them. That will be a snare to you as well. Those little things, those tiny little things that if you let in, that will cause those blessings to fail. So even in an amazing oration of blessing, there are still those things you have to watch out for. You have to be careful of. And that's in the essence of you're walking down a path and that's the enemy nipping at your heels. That little snare that's going to catch you and prevent you from doing what the Lord has called you to do. I also found it interesting in that phrase where it talks about, it even says, I'll drive out those nations before you little by little. You won't be able to defeat them all at once. You won't be able to destroy them all at once. The the beasts of the field become too numerous. This should be an encouragement to anyone who's going through trials and tribulations, who who sees the Lord and the Lord is putting enemies before you, and it doesn't seem like you can overcome these trials. You can't overcome the obstacles that are in front of you. But the Lord says he's still faithful in that process. You will overcome them little by little. Eventually you will. God doesn't always just do it all at once. He doesn't remove all your trials and tribulations all at once and just flip a switch and everything's all better. What he does is he will teach you in the process. He will sometimes test you and he will cause you to maybe question him. But you are to remain faithful to him. He wants to have a people that believe in him even when the trials and tribulations are cause fear. Even when there's possible snares. He wants to make sure that you are the people who have chosen him. This theme continues on as we now read 
in chapter 8, as continuing in our Torah portion. Every commandment which I command you today, must be care- you must be careful to observe, that you might live and multiply, and you go in and possess the land which the Lord your God swore to your fathers. You shall remember the Lord your God who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowing you to hunger and fed you with manna, which which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. This is where God makes it extremely clear that he has the right to test you. He has the right to test you in your faith. He wants to know what's in your heart. It's not about just keeping the commandments, the words of what he said. He wants to know truly what is in your heart in all of your actions to what you do. One could follow the words of the Lord, but simply doing the, the, the bare minimum, those are the things. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. However, those things, that if you go in with the wrong heart, with the wrong attitude in keeping those commandments, then what it is, those things that will be a snare to you, they'll catch you. That's what you'll fall prey to. God has the ability to test you. We don't test God. God tests us. Because we sometimes tempt God in, we put him to the test. We make a decision we want to do, and what will continue on, like I said in our portion, is we will have a recounting of all of the rebellions that took place with the children of Israel, where they tempted God. They tested God, and that didn't work out so good for the children of Israel. This is, and like I said before, this parallels to a passage of Scripture that many people are aware of, especially those Christians that have grown up. This is in, in the church. This is, um, what's interesting about this, this passage is not a part of the regular standard Brit Hadashah readings of our portion. Obviously, those things are traditional, and the, where we get that list is, um, is just traditional of different ways that, that a passage in the New Testament parallels this Torah portion. But if you take notes in your Scripture, you absolutely have to mark down Matthew chapter Chapter 4 with connected to this quote because the Messiah himself quoted this directly. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 and we're going to talk about the Messiah and his temptation in the wilderness. It's very interesting. This parallels immediately when it talks about the children of Israel journeying in the wilderness for 40 years. What's interesting is the Messiah himself went into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. There is a parallel there. Let me now read here Matthew chapter 4. Then Yeshua was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, remember Moses, when he was on the mountain, he also fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. And he answered him and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, uh, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. But Yeshua said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Yeshua said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and he, he, him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is the story. Many people are well aware of this, this passage where the enemy goes to tempt the Messiah three times. Now, many people get caught up in the fact of Yeshua, whether him being the Messiah, if he was able to be tempted. That's something that people have said that it's all like if he's God, he can't be tempted. I don't have time to deal with that particular debate right now because it does say Messiah came down and dwelt with us and he took the form of a man. That he has, by doing so, if he can't overcome temptation, then how is there any expectation of believers in Messiah to also overcome temptation? If he himself, he's that example that we're to follow. If we're to think that he somehow is unable to be tempted, then how do we have any hope of something to follow? So that's my that's my answer when it comes to that particular debate. But I want to talk about how this particular ties back to our Torah portion where he's talking about truly teaching with Messiah being the very literal word of God, the word of God manifested as a man. He spoke these things and you can see the parallel to our portion where he directly quoted man shall not live by bread alone, that this is not something that we're that we are are tempted by that we were given manna and we were taught these things that we don't live because we have food to eat we live because god has blessed us and he reminds us again we don't tempt the lord we don't put him to the test even though we rebel even though we take issue even though we somehow at times think we're right we don't put god to the test and when it's all said and done we all are servants to what god has said that is the answer, and the enemy fled at that point in time. This goes back to what our portion is about. If you believe and obey the Lord, then the enemy, your enemies will flee. Your enemies will have no foothold. They'll have no way to attack you. The, the, the snares will be there, but you just walk right past them. You walk upon them. It's amazing also if we go back to thinking about the heel. The heel is one of the strongest parts of your body that if something needs to be smashed or crushed, you use your heel to do it. That you have where what is a weakness spiritually of your heel of what can be snared is actually is physically a strength to you when you go to do something or to walk or to, to crush something. It's almost like as if if you're keeping the commandments of the Lord, then that heel is not a weakness to you. That heel is a strength to you that because that's what's leading you. That's what's taking the next step. That's what's traveling toward the Lord is by you stomping your heel as you're moving toward what the Lord is wanting you to do. It's interesting also, the interesting parallel to even mythology, that we have this thing in the story of the Achilles heel. That there's an understanding here of this heel has something to do with one's weakness, or that, it has, that, that this is a, a way that you can be ensnared, or that you can be defeated if something is at your heel. But you also remember, like I said, that heel has a great amount of strength. It's interesting in a wedding ceremony, that when a groom, is, when we break a glass in a wedding ceremony, that we diminish from our joy. The man, what does he use? He uses his heel to do that, that that's the part that diminishes that joy. But whenever it's done, it's done with great strength, with great joy, with great celebration. So that heel, which can be snared by the enemy, can also be a great strength that the Lord encourages us. When you are walking toward righteousness, when you are obeying the Lord, that you do so boldly, that you walk and you stay on that path of righteousness. Amen.
As we continue on with our portion, there's a couple of things that um, that I do want to talk about as well. Let me go ahead and continue reading here. Um, let me now move to, to chapter 9, talking about this. We have a reiteration of this Shema here. Hear, O Israel, you are about to cross over the Jordan today. He starts recounting again the, all the things that we overcame. We overcame giants. We overcame all of these kingdoms. But he says something interesting here. As he's going back to describe some of the places where we failed. Let's do verse 7 here at chapter 9. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. So the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you. Then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate neither bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly and they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me saying, I have seen this people and indeed they are a stiff necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. So then it goes on and it recounts that he went down. They had seen the molded, the, um, the molded calf. And then also it continues on with other um, rebellions that took place at Taberah, at Kibroth Hata'va, which is the graves of craving. And it continues on. It talks about the children of Israel as being a stiff-necked people. They didn't hear the words. They didn't follow after the commandments of the Lord. This is not something that we want to do. We want to constantly learn. How do we not be a stiff-necked people? How do we fervently obey the word of the Lord? Because we're all, we all have faults. We all make mistakes. We all, at some times in our lives, have been stiff-necked, have been obstinate, have been, know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm instead going to do this. How do we, how do we prevent that from happening? The problem is also is that those sometimes those people are the very people that talk about keeping Torah and they follow Torah and they got the zitziot on their belt loops and they say they attend service. But then that doesn't keep us from being a stiff necked people. That's something that we've run into that we see sometimes. And and whenever we've had brethren who have left messianic congregations, who have who they, I know people who used to be messianic and now they're Christian again or used to be messianic and now they're Jewish. If we talk about how we're, we believe in the whole scripture, we believe in keeping Torah, being pursuant of a Torah observant lifestyle, and then also believing in the promises of Yeshua, where are we going wrong in the sense that we, that we still have people that are then falling away, that are still stiff necked and not believing those things? Now, I'm not, now, what I will say is this we're all human, we all make mistakes. That no one is perfect, but we are attempting to pursue truly the truth of scripture and the word of the Lord. So, why do people still fall away? We become stiff-necked. We become we we, we let our um, we let our lusts take uh, take over. We become ensnared by something that we think should happen or wish was the case. But instead of following the Lord fervently and pursuing Him, we make our own decision. 
Even though we read these words, even though we read the commandments, even though we read all of these stories of how God delivered his people and we say, I'm Israel, I profess to that, we still are stiff-necked. Even those that follow the letter of the law are stiff-necked. They still stand up, they're obstinate, they're unkind at times even. Every time somebody, and then what example does that set if we truly are followers of the Lord, if that's how we act? I submit to you, and this is going to continue on now with our, further in our Torah portion, is that it's not about following the letter of the law. It's because God tested you. Remember, why did he say that God tests us? To see what was in your heart. Let's move ahead to chapter 10 here, and let's go to chapter 10 at verse 12. I love my, uh, my new Bible that I've gotten in the last year uh, that I read from the New King James, and it has titles that kind of preface each section. And right here above uh, verse 12 here, it says in my Bible, it says, The essence of the law. Amen and amen. Let's read this. I want to know what's at the heart of the matter. What's at the root of the law that we're talking about here? Because we teach Torah. We talk about the commandments. We talk that there's 613 commandments and we follow. What is the essence of what we're trying to do here? Let's read. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Okay, the law is for our good. Glad we, we can now establish that. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens. Okay, that's interesting. We're not talking about just heaven. When we talk about heaven and earth, we now have this phrase called the highest heavens. There's something even greater beyond here. This is, you know what? Now we're getting to the root of the matter. We're getting to the root of what there, there's more to all of these things. The highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. We say that all the time. We're chosen from among all peoples. We do that in our blessing before we read the Torah every single week. Verse 16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice to the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and to him you shall hold fast. And take oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in a multitude. Amen. I don't know if sometimes when you read scriptures you get kind of chills as you're, as you're reading that. I was getting chills as, I was, as I'm reading that. The essence of the law. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. We can talk about we can talk about the circumcision uh, that was given to Abraham and it's supposed to be done on the eighth day and and uh, so that he's a, a, a man of the covenant. But no, this is talking about circumcising the foreskin of your heart. This directly relates to another Brit uh, Hadashah portion. That's Romans chapter two, where it talks about circumcision and uncircumcision. That it's not about a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is inwardly. And it specifically talks about that even that if you don't keep the commandments yet are circumcised, that it counts for nothing. 
It counts that you're not a part of the covenant, that you're not. That what's important is what is on the inside, what is inside your heart. This is the essence of the law. As much as we might talk about the commandments and, 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 and understanding how to do those things, sometimes those have become a snare to us. We get caught up in how to follow the Lord and in in whether somebody's doing it right. And that's what we talk about all the time. But where are we getting down to the very essence of the scripture where it's about what's in your heart? And we're talking about serving those who are fatherless, the widow, doing good for the stranger, clothing the naked, loving the stranger, giving food to the hungry. This is words that many of us have heard before, and you, but usually it was sitting in a Sunday church talking about these things. That they, that they, this is, there is a great number of people that believe in this concept, this principle, but this is truly the essence of the law and of Torah. There are some people that do these things without knowing the words, without knowing the instruction that it is. Instead, they have been told this is what you should do. And in the spirit of somebody that's been someone who's led of the spirit, they do these things out of the goodness of their heart. Or that's what they have a desire and know what to do. And there's some people that keep Torah, that keep the law without ever reading the words of the law. That's somebody who is of the covenant, who's circumcised of heart, who is a brother in the faith. That is somebody who is in covenant with God, even without the letter of things. It's interesting how some of us who have the letter, who study these words, sometimes we lack that heart to do even those things. It's very disappointing to me sometimes when you hear about somebody who has that's that's frustrated with where they are and when people are confessing keeping Torah, but uh, they don't seem to they don't seem to realize this. They don't seem to to reiterate the essence of the law. This is a small passage. It says in, in only a few places where it talks about the true nature of the law in one's heart is to help those that are in need, because so many other things, there's so many other details of Scripture that are a snare to us. The enemy wants to always trap us, keep us from keep, keeping the law, He'll, and he will frustrate us. He will tempt us. He will, he will cause us to, to question the Lord, to test the Lord, to tempt the Lord, and he'll try to tempt us. But if we're following the Lord, if we're being truly led and we, we're in the covenant with God, and, he, and he's tested us and he wants to see what's in our heart, then what we need to do in all of our actions, we need to reflect the essence of the law. We need to show that we are circumcised of the heart. We don't go around checking circumcisions at the door in, in our congregations. I, that would be very uncomfortable and that would not be a good situation. However, what we do in our congregations is we do check the circumcision of the heart. There are people who come into congregation who act a certain way, who believe a certain way, and there are certain people that are circumcised with the heart that do good, and those people are lifted up. Those people are raised up. Those people are raised and, and made leaders and made deacons and made all of these people that, that are, are elevated. And then there are those that reveal that they are not circumcised of the heart, that they do not serve, they do not uh, have a heart to do those things. And those people are usually are the ones that are asked to leave the fellowship and leave the congregation because they portray what covenant they're in. It's not about necessarily a checklist of what commandments you what, what commandments you keep that, that gives you any sort of clout or, or anything like that. Your actions should portray who you follow and who you serve. That should come out of you that natural, from your heart, spiritually, because that is the essence of what it is to keep Torah. 
So if you have some people that are that are praising the Lord and all of the things that they do and they keep Sabbath this way and they do all those things. But then there's unkindness. There's a bitterness when it's time to serve. They don't serve. Then who truly is in covenant with the Lord? Who's who is a uh, a Jew, as it says in in the New Testament, who is a Jew outwardly and who is one inwardly? That's what we should always pay attention to in our own personal minds, in our own personal lives and everything, because there's a great deal of blessing for following the Lord. As a result of obeying his voice and keeping his commandments, there is a great amount of blessing. However, we always need to be mindful of the snares that would cause us to lose that blessing, whether it be our ego, whether it be our lusts, whether it be any of those other things, the enemy nipping at your heels to make you question the direction you're going or to try and ensnare and trap you as you're on your, the path toward righteousness. Let us always remember to keep charge of what the Lord has asked us to do and serve him with our heart and walk boldly in that walk of faith. We need to not fall prey to the tactics of the adversary and everything that he attempts to do to keep us from that. And when you do see those trials and tribulations, when you do see those nations that are only being taken care of little by little, then sometimes that can build up confidence in that the Lord is doing something, that you're doing something right because the enemy wants to stop that. There's no reason for the enemy to ensnare somebody who's not on the path of righteousness. The enemy ensnares those that are on the path of righteousness, that are walking toward blessing and promises. So if you're running into those hurdles and those trials and tribulations in your life, take hold to the fact that you are on the path, that you are focusing on the Lord, and sometimes the enemy doesn't like that. So be encouraged. Walk boldly, one step at a time. Heel to toe on the way to the path of righteousness and obeying what the Lord has said. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for the Torah portion of Ikev. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the wonderful blessings and showing us all of the things. If we follow after the Lord, if we follow after your commandments and your statutes, Lord, there is great blessing to be had. But there is also things that we ensnare us, Father. There are distractions. There are deviations, there's destruction, there's all kinds of things, Lord, that are put in our way, Lord, to keep us from doing those things. Let us not be ensnared by the wiles of the enemy. May we use our heels, Father, to crush the head of the enemy and not have it be a snare to us. Let us not follow after our eyes. Let us not look back on the things of, of the past and, and, and wish for what used to be, Father. Let us not look after... Things and and desiring the gold and the silver that's in the idols of the nations, Father. Let that not be a snare to us as well. But let us look forward to the true blessings that you give to us, Father. That you meet our needs. That you give us bread to eat. That you give us the the fruit of of the field, the fruit of the womb. And that you continue to bless us as a nation, as a people. And for all of those things, Lord, that you give to us. May we look forward to those blessings, Lord. Maybe the ones that we can't see immediately, but the blessings, Lord, that you have promised to us. Father, I pray that you give us strength through all the trials and tribulations that we face. May we always keep our focus on you. May we not think that we have any righteousness to commend ourselves, Lord, but you have done these things to show that you are great, you are mighty, and you are awesome. You chose us not because of anything good that we did, Lord, but you chose us because of the evil of the nations and you chose us for your glory and your glory alone. So let us not fall prey to thinking that we have done anything to commend ourselves, Lord. So we humbly come before you. 
We repent of the sins of our ancestors. We repent of our sins, Lord, and we pray that you confirm the covenant you've made with them and you confirm it with us. We ask that you continue to be patient with us as we walk the path toward righteousness and as you bless us and strengthen us in everything that we do. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for all of these things. And it's in your son, Yeshua HaMashiach, that we pray. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher natan lanu Torah Timet V'chayelam nata betocheinu Baruch ata Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of Truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. All right, good to see everyone. If you would, in your Bibles, please turn to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 49, and uh, put your finger there at verse 14. We're going to begin there and go through all of chapter 50 and into, I think it's the first seven, or no, first three verses of chapter 51. This is the second Haftor portion. And of seven Haftor portions, and the, la- the first one began last week. This is the second of a set of seven referred to as the Haftors of Consolation. And one of the, it, there, this is a sermon. We're not teaching exegetically. I'm going to give you some exegetical teaching and tell you what this portion has in it. But there is a sermon uh, that's been around for a long time. In fact, this sermon comes out of the book of Isaiah, and it's called a homiletic teaching, meaning it's sermonized uh, for us. And there's seven passages, and each Sabbath now, we go through one of those passages, and we have this building story that we tell. Uh, Let me give you the the end result. Let Let me give you the full title of what this wonderful sermon is about. It's called The Consolation of Israel, and the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, this sermon is the oldest biblical sermon that we know of. This sermon was being preached before the Messiah ever came. And in fact, we have evidence in the New Testament as to how powerful this sermon was. When Yeshua was first taken to the temple by his mother and his father, he met a man there. The man actually approached him. His name was Simeon. And it, the, the scripture tells us, and this is in the Gospel of Luke, tells us that this man was a devout man and that he had, uh, had an understanding with God that before he closed his eyes in death, that God would grant him to see the Messiah with his own eyes. And when he sees Yeshua coming into the temple, he cries out and, and, and confronts the parents and so forth and announces that God has been faithful to him and has shown him the salvation of Israel. Now, here's the irony of it, is that the word salvation there is Yeshua. That's the actual name of Yeshua when he came. And by the way, that was the day when he comes to the temple that in which that, he is, that his name is formally made to the community. 
that his name is announced to the community. I mean, the parents have the name. They tell their friends. But when do you tell all of Israel what the name of the child is? That first time they come to the temple. And so they hear they're coming. And here's him making the proclamation of his name. And, of course, it says that both Joseph and Mary were amazed that, that God had spoken to him and that he said the things that he said. Now, in describing Simeon, it says he was a devout man and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. That phrase is part of the Hofdors of Consolation. It's part of what is in this teaching. So he was very familiar with this sermon, and he believed this sermon, and it was of great inspiration to him, and it's what drove him to be in the temple to do what he did with Yeshua. There's also a woman that Yeshua met in the temple that day, and her name is Anna. It gives a little bit of a background of her about how that she'd been married, but she lost her husband, and she had remained in the temple, serving in the temple for many years. And she, too comes up and confronts Yeshua and joins with Simeon. And in explaining her testimony, it says of her, she was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel. Anna is looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, that's the key phrase. This sermon, this Hoftor is a consolation. If you were to summarize and put a title on it, it's called the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. And by the way, let me just uh, uh, make a rather bold, audacious uh, statement about this. The Christian church, I'm going to make this open to everybody. The Christian church, in all of its forms, for all of the sermonizing that they have ever done, and I used to be a good Baptist, and, and that's one of the things a good Baptist minister does, is put together good sermons. Uh, of course, most Baptists put together what we call sermonettes. They only last about 22 minutes or so. Uh, but as a biblical sermon, this sermon that is given in the Hoftors of Consolation, far out, as far as I'm concerned, it is a, a much better sermon than the best one that has ever been put together by the church. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, the church is going to harp, well, we're, we're sermonizing about the Messiah. Guess what this is sermonizing about? The Messiah. And it's from the prophets calling out the name of the Messiah. Yeshua. It's preaching Yeshua as our salvation, as our redemption. And it's laying out the, the, what we call the gospel message. In fact, in this Hoftors of Consolation, you're going to hear the prophet Isaiah refer to the good news, refer to the gospel, of which New Testament writers will quote from when they're talking about what the gospel is supposed to be. And the gospel, whom the church thinks is exclusively their territory, you know that we never had the gospel before until we had the church come along. Sadly, are they mistaken? Because Paul himself even says that God first preached the gospel to Abraham. This gospel message has been going on for a long time. Isaiah the prophet is going to lay out the best sermon you've ever heard in your life. I mean the best sermon. Even the New Testament makes reference to it. And in fact, the apostles, so there's certain key verses in this, I've told you, where the New Testament quotes more often from Isaiah than any other book. Guess what they're quoting? The verses that are part of the Hoftor of Consolation. This sermon that has been given. 
And once you go through and you really see what the sermon is, then you'll understand why Yeshua was talking about certain things. That when he was talking about himself and being the Redeemer and so forth, you're going to find that is exactly what was coming out of this. It's the most powerful biblical sermon that we have in Scripture. And actually is the standard for how to do a homiletic, how to, how to sermonize. Uh, the scripture, this beautiful example of how to perceive the intent of the scripture, the spirit of the Lord that's in that word, and to come forth with a message uh, to the people. Now, as I said to you, this is the second portion of the first portion. The first portion, just to remind you, and by the way, as each week as we go through, I'll remind you of the previous ones so we lined up to understand the next one. Last, uh, last week, last Shabbat, it was from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. And that's the, the, the first message is we're going to do something wonderful and good for the people. And then it's a message that extends from that. Now this one, beginning in chapter 49 at verse 14, says the following words. Um, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Let me just tell you the basic dynamics of every human experience in the world is God created the world, we were, we were brought into the world, we're mortals in the world, and in the course of our first experiences of being mortals and living here in the world, guess what we do? We get into sin. And as the Bible teaches that if, when you sin, you get separated from God. So the first evidence... The first cost, the first penalty of sin is you suddenly recognize, where's God? I, I can't seem to find him. And so the first words of this for this is, for Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Zion is crying out and saying, I feel separated from God. Where's the Lord? I think he left me. What they don't understand is they left the Lord. The Lord didn't leave them. They left the Lord. And that's what happens when you transgress the Lord. When you sin, you separate yourself from the Lord. You turn away from his path. You turn away from the way he's going. And you pick a new path. And you go astray. And then you have the audacity to say, God left me. God didn't leave you. You left God. And so you have this, this disparity between your, your person and where God is at, and you think the Lord has forsaken you. So this is, by the way, when we share the gospel message, one of the first things that we say to a person when we go up and we want to potentially lead to the Lord, we say something like, God has a wonderful plan for you. God loves you. You know, we get comfort, oh, comfort, Israel. You know, we try to say something positive, and then the very next thing we begin to assert is, you do know that you're separate from God. Uh, you, you've sinned. By the way, everybody has sinned, and you're a sinner too. And we get them to confront the fact that they're separate from God. The, with the idea in mind that the, the solution is going to come in, well, you need to get connected with God again. You need to turn, repent, and go back toward God. 
That's the basic gospel message as we go and we try to lead someone to salvation. This is the basic thing. So here's the, the, the key point of asserting to, yes, you're right, you do, you are separate from God, but God didn't forsake you. And you're separate from God in, in terms of recognizing his presence is because you've gone astray. You, you've gone off the path and, and you're going somewhere else. Um, you know, in the church, uh, they're scared to death to try to say to a sinner that you should obey the Lord. They're, they're afraid that, um, that if they say that, they'll think their salvation is based on works instead of faith. And so they're scared to death to say to a sinner, well, you need to obey the Lord. But the reality is, if the guy's sin is caused because he decided to go astray, then the whole act of repentance is that he would turn around and he would go back to where the Lord is at and pay attention to what the Lord says and stop transgressing the Lord. But we're afraid to say that. We'll just summarize it as all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's get past the sin thing. Let's talk about God's grace. But they never teach them how to stay on the path. They simply get saved and then all of a sudden, here they go, off the path again. And by the way, they're not successful in their faith. And there's, we got a lot of frustrated church folks. They're very frustrated. They know something's wrong. It's not working out right for them. And that's the basis of why a lot of people come to the Messianic movement and the teaching. Why? Because we are talking about, hey, come back with your relationship with God, that faith one, you know, and start walking uprightly before the Lord. Stay on the path of the Lord. And that way you'll feel God's presence and blessings and, and you'll be doing what God wanted you to do. Not for salvation, but so you can maintain the relationship with God. And by the way, we all, I don't care who you are in the Christian church, all of us are striving for a better relationship with God. Want to have a better relationship with God? I can tell you what to do. Listen to what the Lord says and do what he says. You'll have a better relationship with the Lord. And stop listening to teachers that say, oh, oh we, we don't want to follow those commandments. I mean, stop and think about it. That's the message from the devil. The message from the devil is don't listen to the Lord. Don't do what the Lord says. The true message is the one that says turn back to what the Lord has said and go follow what the Lord has said. That would be the true message. Now, this whole gospel account, this good news to go out and bring, you know, salvation and deliverance to the people and bring them in is going to be integrated with both faith in the Messiah and you need to learn to obey the Lord. So let me, with that, let me read on a little bit further, because the confrontation of that uh, Israel has been in sin and how to address it uh, very quickly is going to be a part of this message. Verse 15, since the charge has been made that God has forsaken me, let's answer that first. Has God truly forsaken you because you've sinned? Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Is it possible for a woman who has a small baby and is nursing the baby and also has a child in her womb, is it possible that for the child in the womb she will focus on that child to, to the chagrin or to the dissatisfaction of the child that nurses from 
Is that possible? Yes, it is possible. I know it's hard to believe because mothers love all of their children. But because of finite things, a mother sometimes has to focus on this child or these children, and other children don't get quite the attention that they thought they were deserving. Is that possible that a mother could do that? Yes, it is possible. Is it possible for God to forget you? No. God is not like an earthly mother. He is not finite limited. A mother who is doing her best to care for her children is never going to quite do it as well as God will do it. Because she doesn't have the skills that God has. She doesn't have all of the, you know, she's limited to her senses, her, her own strengths. But God is, does not forget. God continues to remember and continues to look for it. Let me read further for you. Verse 16, Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift your hands up and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You shall surely put all of them on as jewels and bind them on as a bride. And for your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land... Surely now you will be too cramped in the, for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Here's what the Lord is basically uh, saying there. He says, everything that you see that you think is at odds with you, your enemies. You know what I'm going to do? I'm the Lord. I'm going to turn every obstacle that's, in, uh, that's bothering you, and I'm going to turn it into like a jewel, and you're going to fix it to your garment like you're a bride. You know, bride's dresses are very, very important. If For those of you who have daughters never gone through a wedding, getting the dress for the bride is like a just as significant event as where you're going to hold the wedding and who's the guy that's going to be marrying her. I mean, it's, it's that important. And one of the major budget items that fathers learn about weddings is this isn't just any dress we're buying here. This is the dress, the dress of her life. Now, imagine a dress with all of its embroidery and its decor and its train and, and the veil that goes with it and, and, and the styling and so forth. And let's go ahead and take precious stones and attach precious stones all over the dress to make it even more valuable, to have greater beauty. Here's what the Lord is saying. He said, you think you've been forsaken. You think your enemies have overwhelmed you. I'm here to tell you, I'm going to take your enemies. I'm going to make them into like precious stones. And I'm going to attach them to you on your wedding dress. That the wedding dress you're going to wear for me is going to be adorned with precious things way beyond your imagination. And I doubt, with the exception of maybe the future queen of England or some monarch like that, that the her wedding dress would be more adorned of more value of, of things. I, you know, I go back to recent days. Princess Diana had a pretty nice wedding dress. I'm sure there was jewelry associated with it. But the Lord is saying, what I'm going to do with you, Israel, is far more than that. Your wedding dress will be even more beautiful. Because I'm going to take all the things that you're all concerned about and fearful of, and I'm going to turn them into adornments for you. 
Well, that's, that's a pretty positive message. You know, we're crying out and saying, hey, the Lord's left me, he's forgotten me, he's forsaken me, and he's going, let's get something straight right off the bat. I have never left you, and I've never forsaken you. One of my favorite verses, and one of the promises that penetrates my heart greatly, is God's promise to me where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have called upon that promise of God a multitude number of times in my life. When I'm low, when I'm hurting, when, I, when I'm confused and, and, and things aren't going well for me, I say, Lord, you have promised me you will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm believing your promise. I don't know how to sort myself out through all of this, but I know that promise is still good. And so I'm, I'm looking to you with hope and belief that you'll fulfill your good word in my life. Here is God making this promise. He's, ma he's making this argument to Israel. You stand up and you say, I've left you, I've forgotten you, I've forsaken you. No, that's not true. That's, that your sin problem is what has caused you to be in this position and have these fears. But we're going to correct that sin problem. And we're going to correct this erroneous perception that you have of God. You believe the wrong things of the Lord. And so we've got to get it straight so that you believe the Lord correctly. And it's what his role is. Verse 19, well, he begins to talk about the place where they live as being like a wilderness, but he says, I'm going to make it a cramped place. Now, what, what is that? What you, there's this wilderness, this barren, and he says, I'm going to make it a cramped place. And what he's referring to is, when you see all my servants come together, it's going to be far greater than you ever thought. That wilderness is going to become part of the kingdom because it will hold the number of brethren that are going to be part of it. And oh, by the way, it'll, we'll be having to fit them in. You know, because the increase of the kingdom is going to be far greater than you can imagine. You think, oh, that part of the land is wilderness. He says, no, 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 that will be a lush place full of people. There will be that many brethren. Let me go a little bit further with you. Verse 20. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in their ears, the place is too cramped for me. There's no Israel. The children that you lost... You're going to get them back. You're going to get them back. And they're going to come and they're going, wow, there's, there's, it looks like there's too many of us. That the return of your loss will be so great that they'll say, is there, is there room for us to come back? He goes on further. The place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me since I have been bereaved of my children and am barren and an exile and a wanderer? And who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From whence did these come? Now Israel has been scattered into the nations. The house of Israel went into Assyrian captivity and dispersed throughout the world. Judah went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Only a remnant came back. Then the Romans came, and then they dispersed all of Judah throughout the world. So Judah and Israel are dispersed throughout all of the world. 
By the way, you do know that in ancient times, any time that would happen to a nation, the nation ceased to exist. Has Israel ceased to exist? No. Why is that, that Israel has not ceased to exist? It's because they have a God who looks after them. They have a God who told Moses that though you disobey me, though you transgress me, though I scatter you in the nations, I will not forget you. I will not abhor you so as to destroy you completely. I will remember the covenant for you, and I will fulfill my promises that I made to your fathers, and I will make you more than the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven, and I will bring you back to this land. And that's where we are today in this generation. We have seen God fulfill the promise to the house of Judah. They were the last ones to go into dispersion. They're the first ones to come back. And we're looking for the house of Israel, which is scattered throughout all of the nations, for them to be revealed and them to make their way back. And that's what this verse is talking about. I, God, am going to make that happen. Now, the Jews love this message. They absolutely love it. In fact, they call this the final redemption. This is what the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem means. It means when God goes out and consoles his people, wherever they're at, and gathers them again, brings them back in, fulfills his good word he made to our fathers. And then he brings them in the focal point of where they're brought to is Jerusalem, where the Lord the Messiah will come and live and reign from on this earth. And then it will be his kingdom. And quite honestly, what was started as the down payment of the kingdom land as being the land of Israel, I've said it correctly, that's just the down payment. But he fully intends to have a kingdom that will have the entire world. The whole world. And so the question is being asked by those of Israel who feel that they've been separated from the Lord. And they say, wait a minute, I, I, I didn't give birth to all of these that are coming. Who, well, how is it they're my sons and daughters now? Where did they come from? Who, who, who gave birth to them? I, I didn't give birth to them. And that's when all the people of the world, including the scattered house of Israel, turns back and believes in the God of Israel. And they, by adoption, become sons and daughters. And so this, this consolation of Israel, this redemption of Jerusalem, these hoftors of consolation, is about what God's intent is to do with everybody's sin. He's going to come up with a solution for everyone's sin so that everyone that wants to have this relationship with God can do so. Let me go a little bit further. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set my standard for the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on your shoulders, and kings will be your guardians, and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth, lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Incredibly powerful verse. It says, I'm going to set something up as an ensign to the whole world. 
And this is going to be the standard bearer in which that all of the people that are going to be coming to my kingdom, they're going to come following that standard. By the way, let me go ahead and just ask you, what is the standard that has been set up for the whole world by God to bring the whole world to his kingdom? It's the Messiah. The redemption of the Messiah is the standard which has been set up. And to this day, every nation of the world has heard about this standard. Every nation of the world since then has heard about what God is doing. And that's the reason why it's called the good news. That's the reason why it's called the gospel. That's the reason why we're putting this message out. This is the consolation to Israel, no matter where you're at, whatever sin has separated you, whatever nation you've been scattered to. I have come good news for you. Redemption is now for you, and God himself will be bringing you back. What an incredible, positive message. Um, like I said, this is a sermon that far exceeds any Sunday sermons you've been getting. And they've been preaching the gospel for a long time. Because they've always been short-sighted. Their sermon was always, well, we Gentiles were coming to know the Lord. Now, I'm not disputing that Gentiles aren't coming to the Lord. I know they're coming to the Lord. But they forgot Israel. Israel has done the same thing. Oh, we're, we're Jews. We're, we're in the kingdom. I don't know about those other guys. I guess they get in somehow. No, I got news for you. We're all in the same assembly. We are going to be part of the same kingdom. We're all going to be under the same standards. We're all going to be keeping the same commandments. And we all have the same spirit, same baptism. It's all the same. There is no difference. This is clearly text written to the house of Judah. And on the broader scale, to all of Israel native-born Israel. But all of a sudden, this is the message. This very message is the message that the Messiah preached for the whole world. And that's what we have in the New Testament. It's the same message as in the New Testament. But here it is through the prophet Isaiah. So where do we get the idea that the, quote, New Testament is new? That's a mis misnomer. What they ought to say is the testament of the Messiah given by Moses and his prophets. That's what it should be. I bet you if I had the Apostle Paul sitting here right now, and I believe he was intimately familiar with this passage of Scripture because he quoted from it quite extensively in his letters, I believe if he was standing right here, he'd say, what do you mean the church got the idea that they were separate from Israel? What are you telling me? That they misunderstood my controversy with the Pharisees uh, who, who were against the grace of God. And, and I explained to them, I said, God's been doing this thing all the way from Abraham all the way up to the present time. That was the message of Paul. And he'd be asking the question, how come you people don't understand that? How did you get the idea that I was starting something new? I didn't start anything new. I was preaching to you what it already says. But that goes to show you how confused we are these days. Um, I want you to, uh, let's see, I think I've read this verse here. Yeah, verse 23 that I read to you. Let me show you just how powerful that verse is in the New Testament. Verse 
If you take the verse, let me read it for you again. Particularly this part where it says, They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth, lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully uh, wait for me will not be put to shame. So, for the record, let me take you to the book of Revelation, to a passage of Scripture. This is the Messiah talking. Let's make sure we got something straight. This is not John, the apostle, talking. This is the Messiah talking. And he's giving a message of encouragement to all of the different churches, all the different fellowships. And I believe he's giving it to the ones that will be at the end of the age. In which that? He says in Revelation 3, 9, he's dealing with there's going to be a certain controversy in the end times. And here's how he addresses it. Verse 9, chapter 3. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. That is the Messiah making reference to this verse in Isaiah 49. See, the message in Isaiah 49 is how he's going to bring all of Israel back. But these Jews who are vexing Ephraim and who are opposed to Ephraim these days, in this day, and some of my Messianic Jewish brethren, I hate to say it, they don't like the idea that there's a bunch of people that are rising up and think they're B'nai Ephraim. They feel it's going to be competition with them. And so, like Isaiah 11 says, that we're still in the days where Judah is vexing Ephraim and Ephraim is vexing Judah. You know, there was a split that took place after King Solomon. That split is still acting. We're still not getting the message that God plans on bringing us all back and reunifying us again. We call the restoration of the two houses of Israel. And there's a bunch of Jews. They don't like that teaching. They don't want to believe that. Uh, look, everybody that's come back to Israel has already come back, and there's no future thing, and we're in charge. That's the simplified version of it. And here's what God says to the last day of churches. He says, hey, you know those guys over there that say they're Jews? They're not really. Wow, what an indictment that is. Those guys who are in those assemblies claiming to be in the assemblies of me, no, they're not in the assemblies of me. They're in the assemblies of Satan. What's that mean? That means they just go around accusing other brethren all the time. So they're called the synagogue of Satan. They accuse other brethren. He says, I'm going to make those particular people come in, bow down before you. Lick the dust where your feet is at so that you they know that I love you. And those that hopefully believe in me, they will not be ashamed. So we have a whole lot of, in this messianic movement, especially amongst the independent messianics, we have a whole lot of people that my Jewish brethren would like to say, well, they're just all a bunch of Gentiles. Well, they might be. It might be. They also might be some of the representatives of the remnant of the B'nai Ephraim, of the other tribes. Now, I want to remind everybody that Ephraim, when he first came into the world, did not look like he belonged to the house of Jacob. He looked like an Egyptian. He grew up in an Egyptian home under his father Joseph. 
Hey, he had a completely different style about him, a completely different look. He didn't look like the sons of Jacob. And so here we have the sons of Jacob, Judah in particular, looking out over and saying, they don't look like they belong to us. They don't, they don't look like us. They're, they're, they're not the same as us. And it's no dumber than hearing the idea that the sons of Jacob didn't think that Ephraim was a part of them. Now, here's the irony. God said, hey, uh, Joseph, your son Ephraim and Manasseh, guess what? I'm promoting them to equal level with their uncles. I'm promoting Ephraim to the same level as Judah. So where is the we're bigger than you, we're over you business? Where did did that come from? Well, that's nonsense. That's confusion. That's not right. And here's the promise in the book of Isaiah as part of the constellation of Israel. All of you who are coming back to me, coming back to me to obey me and so forth, those those brethren that are harassing you, I want you to understand, I'm going to take care of them. Just be patient. Wait, you don't need to go and counter-argue. Just be patient. They'll be coming and bowing down to you very shortly. And that's what I say to my Messianic brethren. Do not argue with my Messianic Jewish brethren when they vex you and they treat you as something less. Do not, don't get into an argument with them. Just stand back and watch what God's getting ready to do. That's the restoration. That's God's way of doing. He's going to restore these old wounds. He's going to heal them and correct them. And he's going to be doing that all over the world as he brings the people back. Now, I wish I could go into more of what we got, but my time has run out because it's intense. Uh, Chapter 50 in particular is asking the question, Who says that I, God, divorce Israel? Somebody, show me that certificate of divorce. Where is that? He's posing the question here. Who? Oh, you're saying that I divorced Israel. I got rid of Israel and so forth. Really? Could you show me the proof on that? Where's the document? Where, where, where does it say that? That's God talking to the modern church. And Israel will be restored. And those who trust the Lord, they'll be part of the group. We will all be restored. But there's a lot of people who are going to be embarrassed when the kingdom comes. I've always said that when the Messiah returns, it's going to wreck everybody's theology. There's a whole bunch of New Testament theologies that are going to get wrecked big time. And we're going to find out, oh my gosh, the Lord didn't change. The, The Lord... He promised us he would not leave us, nor forsake us, nor forget us, and he, he, he kept his word. So where do we get the idea that he'd forsaken us and he's gone and, and, and no more? That's a false teaching. This homiletic teaching here is the true sermon. This is the true teaching. This is the true teaching that was given to Israel. It's the true teaching that was given to the Messiah and the Messiah gave to his apostles and the ones that they were preaching. That's the true message for all of us. Same message. The gospel message. The good news. Amen?
All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, your scripture. Thank you for your promises. And we thank you, Lord, for the teaching called the Consolation of Israel, the Redemption of Jerusalem. And as we go through this Haftor portions, we ask by your spirit that you would awaken within our hearts and souls this incredible message that you have of good news for all of us. We ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom.
stop the 